just the feeling of being safe is healing. Just the feeling of being with somebody with whom our whole system can settle into a sense of safety is treatment, is, is, and then prepares for also moving deeper toward these wounded places. In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Bonnie Badenoch. Bonnie is an author, therapist, mentor, and the co-founder of the nonprofit agency, Nurturing the Heart with the Brain and Mind. This is Bonnie's second appearance on the show, and in this conversation, we dive deeper into her unique concept of inner community and how it can be applied to heal deep-seated wounds from the past and create a felt sense of safety in the body. You'll learn how our neurobiology and mirror neurons put us within each other, how Bonnie's unique approach to psychotherapy offers a powerful modality for healing intergenerational trauma, why self-regulation is a myth and how we're built for co-regulation instead, how to apply radical inclusiveness to heal the negative parts of ourselves that we have imported from others, and more. If you find this interesting, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Bonnie's book, The Heart of Trauma, and you can learn more about her work by going to nurturingtheheart.com. Bonnie, welcome to the show. To get started, could you maybe tell us what is co-regulation and to what extent can we say that human beings are built for for this? Yes, I think it's really important because we hear so much the word self-regulation as though it's something we're supposed to do on our own. But we're actually built, it's in our DNA that we that we are with each other, that um, Steve Porges, the polyvagal genius, <laughs> has says over and over again that connection is a biological imperative. And so we are intended to be with each other in ways that our nervous systems support each other. So if I'm in a having what's called a neuroception of safety, which just means that my inner world is fairly quiet and the outer world isn't bringing me anything that really scares me, and maybe I have someone I care about close to me, that will give me a neuroception of safety, which is how my body feels safe and, and assesses in nanoseconds that safety is here. And then if I come to you, and even if you're feeling a little upset or something, our nervous systems begin to join and the quiet in my nervous system can help you find a quieter place in yours because we become one system. We just become part of each other. It's just the most natural thing. That's so interesting. And you can see, you know, because we've evolved for thousands and thousands of years in these very close-knit groups, how this might have been evolutionary advantageous in our past for groups to have this kind of... Um, this kind of mechanism for, you know, regulating each other, you know? Right. Um, it goes back to mammals. It isn't just humans. Mammals, the mammalian nervous system began to develop this when once we had the need for, say, parents to care for their, their offspring for quite a long period of time, then there needed to be these ways that we connected so that we could support each other. So it goes back in evolution way before humans. 100%. Now, in your book, um, you talk about this. There's an article from David Bornstein in the New York Times in 2014. It's titled, Teaching Children to Calm Themselves. <laughs> what do you think this, re this reveals about our culture's underlying assumptions about what constitutes good mental health and well-being? Well, it's a very interesting thing because the article is uh, written by someone who has a more left hemisphere kind of 
take on things and is trying to figure out how we can be more independent because that's what the left hemisphere does, how we can self-regulate and all of that. But what I love about this article is even though the author is of that mindset, the women that are working with the, the women that are working with the children in here clearly are not of that mindset because they're very aware that when a child is upset, what you do is bring them onto your lap first, not as an afterthought or as a last resort, but as the place where we begin. So even though even though the author of the article is kind of caught in this left hemisphere individualism, independence, self-reliance, self-regulation world, the whole rest of the article is about the exact opposite. So it's a really powerful, powerful article. It talks about how when we've had trauma, when we've had upset, when we've had a cultural experiences of poverty and things like that, that we need to have another nervous system to support us so that our own can develop. And it's really beautiful the way they talk about how they are with these kids. I love that article. There's there's a part in your book I I just I just want to read out here and I'd like you to expand on it after that I find find really interesting. So Commenting on this article, you said, rather than advocate for teaching self-regulation, we might speak about entering into relational environments that support internalization of nourishing others for ongoing co-regulation. Could you maybe expand on that a bit, Bonnie? Whenever, or, sure. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're not always going to be able to be with somebody who feels really trustworthy and warm to us. I mean, we just aren't. We're in all kinds of environments and we're by ourselves a lot too. And so built in again to the way that our systems work over time, we've developed, and again, not just humans, but other species as well. We have developed the capacity to take in others and have them become part of us through the mirror neuron system, which is connected also to all this resonance circuitry. And now in just just the last, I don't know, year or two, we have found actual neural cells that's encoding my experience and also cells that are encoding your experience. So we know for sure, we can see in the brain how we bring others in and make them part of us. So if I have a lot of really warm, connected experiences with you, you gradually become part of me internally and then continue to support this sense of safety and goodness inside of me. So it's a it's an absolutely, again, such a if, if connection is this biological imperative, how wise of our system to bring others in that help us do this it help us stay in this calmer state so if i'm feeling upset or let's say i'm with a client i'm with the person i'm working with and something they're talking about begins to touch me and i begin to feel some anxiety let's say or something in my own system not just resonating from theirs but of my own i can turn my mind to the people who i've most deeply internalized and call on them inside myself and can feel myself settle because they are the ones that have helped my nervous system learn how to settle. It's lovely. <laughs> it's so interesting. And we're going to dive deeper into it in, in a few minutes, but I want to ask a few more things about co-regulation before we get going. Um, so you mentioned Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory earlier. Um, to what extent can we say that in therapy or generally in human life that safety is the treatment. Oh, I think it's true. I mean, I think that 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 statement by Steve is is so powerful because once our system is able to settle into safety, we can move toward vulnerability and then we can begin to touch the places inside that are wounded and they can begin to be bathed by the care of another. 
So it, the, the safety is the absolute foundation. And since we have, if we've had trauma, we haven't felt safe. Just the feeling of being safe is healing. Just the feeling of being with somebody with whom our whole system can settle into a sense of safety is treatment, is, is, and then prepares for also moving deeper toward these wounded places. So I think it's absolutely true. I actually wrote a chapter in a book about polyvagal theory, and that's the title of it. Safety is. Yeah. <laughs> and Stephen wrote the, the foreword for your book as well. Um, what's the title again? The 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 heart of, heart of the trauma. Heart, heart of heart of trauma. Yeah. Um, so that that's a really interesting view. I've never heard that before. That you know, safety allows for vulnerability and then vulnerability is the the place where the healing can take place but you can't have the vulnerability or the healing without the safety first so it makes perfect sense yeah you know yeah we should only become really vulnerable in safe spaces you know which which involves almost always the presence of another person but also very quiet environments can help that as well you know so there's some flexibility about that. But yes, another person is, is Steve Poor just calls it the passive pathway, meaning that just two people in a ventral state are already healing each other, you know, without doing anything, no protocol, no intervention, nothing, just that safety is healing both people's system. Very cool. Now, this is obviously a huge assumption that you, you've really, um, I wouldn't say debunked, but you've really, um, you made me question at least um, this idea of like self-regulation and how we're sort of built to co-regulate. Are there any other major assumptions that our culture has around mental health that you feel that can be quite detrimental to us that we maybe take for granted? Boy, that's a really interesting kind of thing. Yes. I think that one of the, it's like we have to back up and talk about some other things to get to this, but our, our whole culture is based in a more left hemisphere. We've got two hemispheres. The right is is built for relationship. It's built for connecting. It's built for, for being with the space between us. The left hemisphere takes what the right brings and categorizes it and, and makes it into a kind of a stable platform for manifesting things in the world, for making them actually happen in the world. So they're both really, really important. But when we get locked into the left hemisphere, there's no neural circuitry for relationships. So we're alone. We inside of ourselves, often, probably almost always below conscious awareness, have a sense of fear, because we feel completely isolated from others. And that's what gives rise to this sense that being on your own, being an individual, self-regulating, self-care, all the things that begin with self, are, is the only way to go is because if we're locked into the left hemisphere way of feeling the world, there isn't anybody else that's actually able to help us in any meaningful kind of way. We can use other people to get certain things done, but we don't have a sense of companionship. We don't have a sense of connection when we get locked into this left that's focused on goals and tasks and you know how do we get to the next success and all those kinds of things. And when is what is proper behavior and all of that stuff is all left hemisphere stuff and it leaves us utterly alone. So one of the characteristics of the left hemisphere is being overly optimistic at the same time that there's also a sense of paranoia and a fear because we aren't meant to be alone and that's how we feel. And that this is the work of Ian McGilchrist, 
and, and the book, The Master and His Emissary, which along with Steve Porges, those are probably the two people that I feel really ground us in a different way of understanding how to be with each other and what our world needs. Yeah, if anyone's interested in a deeper dive in that, um, we've recorded another, another interview interview together um, where we talk more about Amy Gilchrist's work. So that's worth, worth checking out. That's on the YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, that's that's so interesting that this left hemisphere dominance in our culture leads to this sort of felt sense of what Alan Watts would call a, of being a skin encapsulated ego where you just feel cut off from the world around you and everything's separate from you and you sort of just have this sense that you're on your own and you have to sort of look out for yourself and be maybe over, overly competitive you know um so very very destructive now i want to move on to inner community bonnie and can we start by telling us what exactly is inner community and could you tell us about the significance of the phrase from Yakaboni that our neurobiology pits us within each other yes so then we bring in another, it's how, I always feel when we're doing these talks, you know, it's like we're bringing these really enormously influential people in with us, whether it's Steve Porges or, or Ian McGilchrist. And now we bring in Marco Iacoboni, whose work on mirror neurons begins to help us understand how interwoven we are with each other, all of us with each other. So we've talked about co-regulation, but we can also talk about co-dysregulation. If somebody is very, very upset and comes to me and I'm on the edge of being upset, we can join and we begin to co-dysregulate each other. So I mention this because we're taking in everybody around us through mirror neurons and resonant circuitry. And now we know these particular neurons that are encoding my experience and your experience side by side, you know, so that they be we become these dyads inside. So let's say I'm just having a conversation with a friend. And, and she's telling me about something that has really upset her. So I am feeling maybe in a really settled place that day. So I'm able to kind of hold her. So I'm having my felt sense experience. But as she's speaking with me and she's feeling this upset, I also have this whole system of mirror neurons and resonance circuitry that are taking her in as well. They're taking in her emotions, her emotional emotional qualities. They're, we're taking in um, the, the sense of what's going on in her body, like body to body, we're taking each other in. I'm taking in her intention. Is she, is she doing something to harm me or is there, you know, not has nothing to do with that, that it's much more benign. But I'm also taking in how she looks, how she sounds, you know, if she's reaching out to touch me, what's the quality of her touch? I'm taking in all these sensory pieces as well. And then as we end our conversation, there's now a dyad inside that's holding my experience and her experience together. And that becomes part of me. That's woven into me neurobiologically. Now, if we never, ever have a conversation like this again, this is not going to have much influence inside. But if the pattern of our relationship is, is that she comes to me when she's upset and I become her regulator, then over time, that dyad gets stronger and stronger and stronger inside and has more of an influence on how I experience the world. So we're doing this all the time. We're, you and I are doing it right now. Wow. You know, I, I understood the first part, but I think what you say, that the second part is particularly important here, that if it's an ongoing thing, it becomes, it's more likely to become internalized and part of the self, whereas if it's a one-off, it might not be as helpful going forward. So is this why things like 
one of the reasons why therapy might be so effective for people in helping them to change and yeah, because we become part of our people. I mean, everyone who comes to see me and I see them maybe for six months, a year, lots of people for multiple years. I've worked with really severe trauma for a long, long time. And so we truly become part of each other. But it isn't only them internalizing me, which can be very helpful to feel like when they leave the therapy room, I go with them. But they also come with me. I'm internalizing them as well. And so we carry each other in this really beautiful way. And that's why Marco says we live within each other. We literally live within each other. Um, long before Marco Iacoboni, Einstein said, we have an optical delusion of separateness, an optical delusion, because I see you over there and I see me over here. I have an optical delusion that we aren't interwoven. When in fact, Einstein realized from you know, a physics point of view, everything is interwoven. And that that's the actual reality, that we're all influencing each other all of the time and carrying each other forward. We become permanently part of one another. So sometimes when I'm talking with my people, we'll talk about whether the internalized person that we're maybe working with at the time is a little one or a really big one, you know, because <laughs> people that we're around all the time, especially early on in life, have a very large internalized presence inside of us. We're with them every day. And maybe they have more than one kind of presence. Like my dad was very playful and I have a really playful side thanks to my father. And I can feel him throwing me up in the air when I was a little kid or being silly with me and all of that. My dad was also highly critical and could really nail you about any little thing because he was terribly anxious. And so he could do that. So I also have an internalized father that could make me feel shame and fear. So I have more than one father inside, and we almost all do, as these parents of ours have many different characteristics. And so it, it, we begin to get in touch with parts of people who have been traumatizing for us, that tendency for me to feel easily blamed or shamed, even though I continue to work on it in therapy. You know, I'm 80 now. I think I'll be doing this until my last breath, you know, to work with that. But it's left me vulnerable to feeling shamed when people aren't intending that even because I had such a strong input for all those years I was with my dad. But you can also count on me to be silly and all that kind of thing, too, because that's really easy to access, you know. This is, this is so interesting. Um, so it's almost like when someone's going to a therapist, it's almost like you're going there and you're almost installing that, to use a met, like a computer metaphor, it's like you're almost installing that person as part of your your psyche for ongoing regulation afterwards. If, if the relationship goes well and you work together for a period of time, they become part of part of you. Right, I like that language better than the installing part. The installing part, computer ones come from that more left hemisphere place. So. <laughs> But we're bringing them in. They become part of us. They become literally part of the community that we are inside. We have mere neuron activity probably in the womb, but for sure right after we're born. So we're doing this internalization thing from the very beginning of our lives. And, and we carry on as, as, a, as a community inside, not just as an individual self. There, there isn't such a thing as an individual self without all of these other people because that's not how we're built. We're built for community, literally. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's incredible. And one of the things you said in a previous interview we've done is that maybe one of the most important things that anybody could do for their mental health is to seek out these kinds of nurturing relationships 
in our lives. Could you maybe speak to that? And then you give a really interesting example in the book of a friend of yours. She works with the homeless community and a bottle of water. Can you maybe tell us about that there as well? I will. It's one of my favorite stories. I just am so touched by what by what happened. So so the story goes that he had a he worked almost entirely with a home with homeless men. And one of the things that's a big concern is dehydration when you're on the street because there's not access to water. And so he knew that this man was was dehydrated often and he would encourage him to drink. So one day he came in and and was not really very accessible for doing therapeutic things or anything like that. But my but my friend decided just felt like he wanted to give him a bottle of water. So he gave him a bottle of water and then he drank with him. And without any words of like, you know, you should be drinking more water. I worry about you kind of thing. They just had this drink together. And the next time he saw this man, the man had the water bottle with him and had been using it the whole time because it gave him the feeling of being cared for and being with this person who had given him the bottle of water. So it became one of his most treasured possessions because in that way, he was bringing this man with him every place he went. And this was with no intention to try to get him to drink more water, which never worked. But the connection works. The connection made this an extremely valuable and important thing for him to be carrying this other man around in the street with him every day. That's incredible. And just, you know, something that comes to mind here as well, like in the way that the the bottle of water, I've got one here, represents that connection between the man and uh, the counselor or your friend. Um, do you think it would be wise then if someone is has a nourishing relationship with, um, say, a therapist or a close friend or whatever, um, if they could find some kind of object to bring into the relationship as well with them that they could carry around with them wouldn't have to be anything too significant but just any kind of symbol of that connection you think that could be therapeutically beneficial oh absolutely you know if it's something that kind of springs up naturally i've been wearing this necklace for 20 years now see that it's plastic it was given to me by a person who is incredibly dear and supportive to me. And many times a day I find my hand, especially if something's going on that feels upsetting, just goes there and touches that. And I feel that presence come. Yeah, very nice. Now, some people aren't real tactile and it isn't so important. Maybe they need something else. Maybe they need a recording of the person's voice that they can listen to. And I have read many stories to favorite stories to, to my to my people that I've seen, you know so that they can hear a bedtime story or whatever story it is. The Velveteen Rabbit has been a particular favorite, you know, so I've, I've read it. And then the voice activates inside of us. We have mirror neurons around sound as well as around sight. You know, it isn't just seeing something, but also touching something or hearing something also activates the sense of that person inside. So I think with our, with our people or with our kids or whatever it is, is what works for them. What is it? Is it the sound of the voice? Is it something tactile to touch? You know, what? what is it a picture? You know, what is it that most touches that person? Because everybody's an individual and has different ways of sensing that connection most, most powerfully. Definitely. Now, have you thought here about any link between this and dreams, how this might show up in dreams at all? 
Well, I think certainly our inner community can show up in dreams. I I had such frightening nightmares as a child that I had I still have a, a slight resistance to even hearing people's dreams because I pretty much shut off memory of my dream life probably by the time I was 10 because they were so terrifying. So I'm not really great with dreams, honestly. It's not a pathway that's easy for me, but I have people come in all the time and, and tell me, you know, I had this person in my dream. It didn't look anything like my dad, but it sure felt like my dad, you know, or it sure felt like my friend. And I think inner community can be very active in dream life. An extension of dream life is doing sand tray therapy, where we where we are using images to build worlds. And boy, it's all about inner community. And it's very similar. They, some of the, the Jungian sand play people would say that it's conscious dreaming is what sand tray actually is. And I've been doing that since 1993 and really love it. And you can just see <clears throat> that, that the entire tray is populated with the inner community of people. Wow. It's right okay. there. And, um, <laughs> so <laughs> we... Uh, from, from having this conversation, it's clear that we have these these native parts of ourselves, you know, that might be like the the inner child that's wounded or whatever, but we also carry this, the the other part of uh, other people as well, which, which you call imported parts. So how can we distinguish between these different parts of ourselves whenever we're, whenever we're doing this kind of work? Sure. We know it's kind of the most natural thing in the world because somebody will be telling me, let's say, about an experience they had with a sibling 10 years ago. It doesn't have to be when you're a little kid. It could be any time, you know. <clears throat> and I'll, I can just ask them, do you see this person or do you feel their presence? And nobody ever says no. I mean, if they're talking about it, they've already brought the person into the room. So they might not be able to see them visually because that isn't how their their system works, but they can feel them perhaps, or they can hear their voice. You know that there's a way that the presence of that person inside, since they're not sitting here in the room with us, <laughs> clearly they brought them in inside them. And so as people start to think about this a little bit, it's like, yeah, these people walk around with me every day and guide how I see the world in some kind of way. You know, like if I like I begin to I begin to say, see my father's face talking to me about school and how he really wanted me. He had to leave school very early in life when he was 14 because of the depression and he had to go to work to try to support the family. And he was absolutely determined that his girls were going to go to college and all of this kind of thing. So he was very supportive about school. So when I think about school and all that kind of thing, I can feel my dad's like warm encouragement about that in my body. So he's right here still encouraging me about those kinds of things. So again, that's another aspect, playful dad, encouraging dad, critical dad, you know, um, emotionally unable to express himself, dad, you know, who I don't think I had a single emotionally meaningful conversation with my father ever in our lives. He just was, he just couldn't do it. So I have that distant dad. I have all these different aspects of him right here with me that I can easily feel, even just me saying those words, I feel a shift in my body when I, each time I, I call on one of those aspects of my father. You know, I can feel a warmth around school. I loved school. It was, there was a lovely place to be for me. 
And I can also feel my yearning for him to be able to talk to me and just couldn't do it. You know, I can feel that in my body now. So we can continue, we continue to carry this. So in therapy, if I'm with, if I'm the client and my therapist notices that I have brought this dad into the room, we can also turn to the dad inside and we could say to my distant father, what's hurting you or scaring you that you can't talk to your daughter? And that internalized person will respond just the way an inner child would or an inner teenager would or anything that's of my own. You know, I've I've encoded enough of him, taken enough of him in that he'll be able to respond eventually and let us know what it is that makes it so hard for him to have a conversation. Just a quick break here to tell you about an exciting new membership we're developing, and then we'll get right back to the show. This gets you access to our master library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information. Wow. This this strikes me as like highly, maybe potentially um, beneficial for like, let's say I was going to do something that I was anxious about or scared about. Let's say I was going to give a talk or whatever. And there was going to be, it was like a public speaking thing. There was a big crowd there and I was nervous about it. I wonder like by recalling experiences that have brought me warmth and safety and connection by recalling those just before, do you think that is likely to create a greater sense of safety as you go to do that thing you're, you're scared about? Yes. It will certainly help. I mean, it may not take it all the way away, but it certainly will increase this. Again, you'll have this sense of co-regulation, especially if it's somebody who's been really encouraging of you about your speaking or thinks you're a wise person, you know, or has something that relates to what it is you're about to do. And you can feel that person's presence saying, you're good at this. You know, you're good at this. You have something to offer in this area. Because we also maybe have experiences inside where we were scared and we, you know, could hardly speak and didn't do a very good job and all that. We've also got those experiences inside, too. So we don't want to ignore those. We want to acknowledge them. And at the same time, they'll bring in those who have who who continue to be an encouraging presence inside. Yes, it's very helpful. Okay. Now, how did you, this is a very unique understanding of human nature. Like, how did you arrive at the concept of inner community, Bonnie? Well, it's an amazing thing. Back in my 40s, I finally got some help for the trauma, the significant traumas in our family. And that person, without calling it inner community or anything, was very clear that other people other other parts lived inside of people. He'd worked with people that had what we used to call multiple personalities, and we call it DID, dissociative identity now, and all that kind of stuff. And so he, I think, had had a ringside seat in seeing not only the different parts of people, but who were they associated with? Like, how did they develop? If there was a terrified part inside, who was the one that caused the terror? And could this terrified part still see that person? Just happened naturally for him. And so in my own therapy, I experienced this back in my 40s. 
So it's been just a natural development from there because it was so helpful for me to be able to begin to understand and feel more deeply why it was that my my mother and my father were so wounded that they really delivered an awful lot of wounds to me and my sister just passed down through the generations. So it develops a real deep compassion when you begin to get in touch with the pain inside of those who have hurt you that didn't ever show you what their pain was because they were busy passing it off you know, to us. But it was still in there and, and I was had internalized enough of them to be able to get, begin to sense that they were not even meaning to be hurtful. They just didn't have anything else to bring because of what had happened to them. You know, abuse is a form of attachment. And if parents have been terribly abused, they don't know how to attach to their kids any other way. Their system literally doesn't know how to do it differently. And so that began to develop in, in me this sense of, of compassion for my parents instead of feeling them as, as in some ways kind of you know, like monsters inside, terrifying monsters in certain ways inside. I began to feel a much softer sense of, of them. So literally those internalized parents are healing in me, even though my outer parents have been, you know, have, were, were in no way interested in healing at all. But inside, inside I could come to a, a compassionate reconciliation with both my parents. And I really, again, with years of work, really feel that about them. I feel so sad for what their experience was. And I don't feel the sting of an, an anxiety and terror that I used to at all around the things that happened. It's like it's really neutralized that and given, again, a sense of a healing community inside, even with people who were very harmful to me and my sister. You hear a lot these days about intergen intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma. And this strikes me that this, your approach is probably maybe one of the most direct ways of working with this and, and healing. Um, these these patterns like what are your thoughts on that and yeah what are your thoughts there well i think that there is a lot to be gained in this way because if we go inside and we say say we're you know we are working with an inner child part if we come from that kind of thing and this child begins to feel more I, i'm the therapist and my person is bringing this child to me and that child and my inner world begin to really connect that's really good and it's really important and the child begins to have a different sense of herself and things begin to change. But if we're not also working with, say, there was a sibling who was abusive, if we're not working with that internal part, then that internal part continues to offer abuse inside. And you have to either do something to block it off. I mean, you have to do something with that. Or you continue to have periods of time where you feel that fear coming back because that internal person has not changed. So to me, it's absolutely the best thing we can possibly do in every way to also work with that internalized other person. And because our mirror neurons and resonance circuitry take in so much of that person, it is possible for that person to find the same kind of healing that, say, the child who was wounded finds. So for someone listening to this, that's like kind of, you know, they're, you know, they're sold on the concept of inner community. They're like, they're interested enough to sort of start exploring this like what are some of the most effective ways that someone can begin to understand and get to know their own inner community well i think you know as we talked about at the very beginning this having a neuroception of safety with another person 
coming together with somebody. It does not have to be a therapist. If you have two people who are really interested in this and want to explore it together, then one can be the listener while the other person begins to explore and kind of hold a safe, open, non-judgmental state. So what makes you safe for me is if you come to me and you want to just listen to me and take me in and not fix me, not make suggestions, but really just offer a safe space where I can be held and heard. Then two people can certainly get together as listening partners, which is something we advocate in all the classes we teach, whether we're in person or online or whatever, is having a listening partner who will hold you so that you can really deepen into the experience of this. And then you can just begin to ask, you know, who is there inside? Or you could say, maybe you want to explore your experience with dad. Where are all, where are all the parts of my father? You know, and then be open inside your own self in the embrace of another who feels safe to you to begin to say, oh, there's my playful dad. Oh, now I feel this tightness in my belly. And there's my dad who was critical with me, you know, this kind of thing. And you just begin to explore in this way. Um, some people go at it in a more left hemisphere kind of way and begin to make lists and all of that. And that's okay. But the healing happens in the felt sense of what the relationship was like, not in the cognitive understanding of it. But cognitive understanding can be a place to begin. You know, we can begin to think about how many aspects of dad or mom or siblings or teachers or whoever it is, you know, are in there and make some lists. And maybe that gives us a more settled feeling of some ground underneath us, like there's that. But then we want to begin to touch into what did it feel like to be together with that aspect of that person. But it's so important to be accompanied because that's what gives that, that safety to be vulnerable to touch these places and know that somebody else is there providing this container as you move through it. And slowly, slowly is always the watchword. There's no rush. For sure. Now, your book is unlike any book I've read before in terms of the way it's structured and the way it's communicated. So you've got a, a blend of relational neuroscience, you've got stories, and you've got these felt sense sort of interruptions throughout where it's all kind of goes into one and it creates a sort of holistic learning experience, you know? So why is it important that people understand the, the relational neuroscience here as well? And that the left hemisphere is given some, I think you call it like food or information to sort of keep it satisfied too. Why is that important? Well, it's an awful lot to ask somebody to go toward a lot of inner pain and fear. And the relational neuroscience, when we understand how this works, gives us some kind of solid foundation to stand on, I think, to go like, this is a normal experience. This is what everybody on the planet has, is experiencing. And, and I can go at this in a way where as I, I, like if I start to get in touch with a really scary part of somebody that has harmed me, if I can understand that that's a slice of them that I've internalized through this circuitry in me and now is part of me and will, because of that, be able to heal inside me, it's very different than just encountering the scary face of whoever that person was who hurt me. It's, it's so regulating to have some sense of what is happening. Part of it is, you know, that in a Western culture, we really worship science. So if somebody says science says this, 
<laughs> it has a settling effect on us, like, oh, it's completely true, which isn't always true. Science can be as wrong as anything else. But, but, but what I'm saying is, is that when we bring in this relational neuroscience that we're discovering, there is a way that it can help us contain the magnitude of some of these really big emotions that come up, especially around people who've harmed us. And also can really encourage us to find those people inside who continue to support us, the parts of the people who've been really helpful to us so that we keep them close by as well, which can be balancing too. So I have found it enormously, enormously helpful. And I found, I guess one of the, the sweetest things about this was I did a lot of supervision for a lot of years. And I don't know anybody who's been a therapist probably remembers you 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 know you did you did okay in school you got through that but will you be able to actually sit with people you just don't know till you try to do it you just simply don't know so there's a lot of anxiety and what I found was that as I began back in 2003 was my first encounter with Dan Siegel and that was what really started me down this path that from then on, as I was sharing what I was learning with my interns, I just watched their anxiety come down because they knew what was happening in the room. If somebody had a big burst of emotion, <clears throat> instead of feeling all flustered about it and not sure what to do, they knew what was happening in the nervous system. They knew about the power of them just being there in a holding space and that this person's nervous system would begin to follow them. And it took away at least 50% of their anxiety. So there's a lot of value in it. In so many ways, parents begin to understand more about what's happening with their kids when their kids are misbehaving. In a left hemisphere society, bad behavior is terrible and judged and criticized. In a right hemisphere, there's a curiosity, a warm curiosity like, okay, my child's upset and is doing this thing. I wonder what's happening inside them. I wonder what's going on. And so it's applicable in business. It's applicable it might even be applicable somewhere in our government, which is completely crazy at this point, you know, if we could understand these things and begin to bring them, you know, to bear, to, to really bear fruit where, we, where, we're, where we're actually living like this with this kind of curiosity about what, what's going on for this person that they're doing whatever they're doing. It seems that if you hold this basic paradigm of, of people, that it would lead to a tremendous amount of both curiosity and compassion because you realize when someone is behaving in a certain way it's probably because of some younger wounded part and maybe a, a part they've internalized from a parent or someone that's hurt them as well you know well right and they're scared and so now they're doing things to protect themselves including acting like idiots like what's going on in our congress right now you know but those people are scared and 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 using all their protective strategies, because we develop protectors inside. I don't even like the word strategies. It's, that sounds way too cognitive. But once we're hurt, we have to begin to develop some protection so that hurt isn't always flooding our system and making us not able to, to function in the world with the parts of ourselves that are more healed, you know, that are more healthy. So we develop these protections and they can be anything from anger to something like, um, if you're an introvert like me, like reading, 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 like when in doubt, go inside a book kind of thing, you know, that's a protection. Food, drugs, you know, any kind of addiction, all those things are protection against the pain and fear that we're carrying. And so when we lead with that, we get a pretty messed up world, you know, when we're leading protector to protector, we have a pretty messed up world 
because we don't have any ability to, again, find enough safety to settle and find real solutions to difficulties. We can't do it until we feel more safe. So again, because of what I do, you know, what I've done for a living, for me, it's on a person to person basis. It's a one on kind of thing, you know, or families or but small groups. But if we could do this in a more cultural way, maybe there's some hope for even saving the planet. You know, it gets pretty big because if you're in the left hemisphere, the planet's a bundle of resources that you get to do whatever you want with. And if you're in the right hemisphere with the support of the left, you feel the sadness of what's going on because you can feel your interconnectedness with the trees, with, you know, the earth, with the waters of the earth and all of that kind of thing. And then that leads to kind treatment and care for the planet. So it has consequences that are existential for us as well as one-on-one how we are with each other. It strikes me and makes me wonder that will we ever get to a point in the future where people that are in positions of power, like let's say politicians and CEOs, like I wonder, could we ever get the situation in the future where it would almost be a requirement for these people to be in therapy so that they're not leading from a protector partner and they're leading from like a, maybe a deeper place that is in touch with the right hemisphere and is more connected. Like, I think that would be very, very important, you know, because our society is run by people that are, don't take these things into consideration, you know? Well, and of course, a big piece of that is is that the training of therapists these days is mostly left-centric. So going into therapy isn't necessarily do anything to help heal these wounds because if you're coming from a, a place where you as the therapist are the expert and you are going to do these various protocols and assessments and all this kind of stuff for people to heal, then there's not much safety there because you're not actually being with the person as an individual as they are in this moment. So if we want therapists to be able to help people, first we have to help the system that educates and trains therapists to do it differently. And if I were a lot younger, that is what I would be doing at this point is seeing what we can do to change the way therapists are trained because it's not helpful for the most part. So I'm happy to be helping younger people really get settled into this so that they can begin to be the ones that begin to change the system by which therapists are educated because it's largely left hemisphere. If you were designing a, uh, let's say, a course for beginning therapists, and we'll just talk about the modules here, like the kind of key things that you'd want them to learn in the first three years, like just like bullet points, what would they be? Like what would be the, the, the big things you have in that curriculum? Well, they, they wouldn't be entirely bullet points because the first thing needs to be that the teachers, the ones who are actually, so, so remember, we're internalizing each other. So what you want therapists to do is internalize people who already are in a state where they can provide a neuroception of safety because they have taken their own mental health so seriously that they continue to get help. So that they, as they are in the classroom, are carrying inside of them this sense of neuroception of safety in their inner world so that the therapists who are coming to study can begin to internalize that neuroception of safety from their from their teachers rather than teaching a lot of left hemisphere concepts that are disconnected from any felt sense of safety inside the actual teacher 
So it requires changing things from the top down where the where the priority is. How am I attending to my own mental health? Who's got my back? Who are my supporters who listen to me and give me this experience of being truly held? And who's holding them? The person who's holding me also needs to be being held. So we want a society in which there are layers of support all the way through so that we can all afford to be dealing with the things that are painful and traumatic and scary for us on a regular basis so that we then pass down this legacy of it's okay to feel what we feel and, and find healing for the things that have, that have harmed us. So it has to start way back there somewhere where where the people who are providing the education are actually doing, I mean, they, you can talk about these concepts all day, but if the teacher doesn't embody it in some way, what's what's the what's the the student internalizing? So I was so lucky. I had the best supervisor for the first year as for my first year as a therapist who was one of my profs. And he was a, this beautiful, warm, supportive human being who had actually worked with schizophrenic people for most of his young training times and had developed such a compassion and understanding for them. And he brought this warmth and care into our relationship. So between that and having a therapist that was modeling that for me, that's how I became a therapist. Not all the theories and everything else I learned in school. They're of minor significance was of major significance were these two people who were who were in, who are becoming part of myself and of how I am a therapist and I you know if I think of of Dave and Tim I can feel them here with me and then two or three other people who since then have also become an enormous part of what I do not the theories the theories are secondary after the experience and the experience is way more powerful so it's it's a, a complete overhaul of, of a of a viewpoint about what matters about being with each other in this world. Wow. Okay. Okay. So the most important thing is that the people giving the training, the people that are teaching, they they're embodying these principles and not just teaching concepts, not just passing on left hemisphere concepts. Like it's it's a thing that people will they will see these people in action or they'll, they'll take that in themselves though. And then they'll pass that on that way. Well, they're internalizing them, right? They're internalizing them. And so they have the felt sense inside of what that kind of relationship is. The other thing is, is that it's really important during I think, our training that we get really good therapy. Most, most, not all certainly, but most therapy training programs do require you to do some therapy, but anybody can just walk through a therapy experience like that and not really bring much of themselves to it. You know, I mean, it doesn't say anything about the quality or what needs to happen. And so I think that there's a component possible, what I experienced a little bit in my own training, where you're actually experiencing having some therapeutic experiences in class. And I think that that, again, there has to be a neuroception of safety and you have to know that your grade does not depend on you admitting that you have difficulties you know that that this is that this is the very heart of it is to bring our struggles in so that they can again be receiving this tender care so we don't bring them to our clients it's it's, it's all upside down and backwards right now and i hope it will change yeah i hope it will change but i i'm not going to be the one who does the changing but again i have people that i've been working with for years that are young enough so that they may be part of what's change what will change so that's exciting
Now, in the book, you've a, you've a chapter titled Radical Inclusiveness. So what does this mean and how can this help us heal our inner community? Yeah, it's uh, that this <laughs> we have a tendency. And again, this comes from the left hemisphere and also from all our training in this culture that we have parts of ourselves that are well or sick or we have parts of ourselves that are good or bad. You know, we, all this judgment, that's all left hemisphere kinds of things. What if we come from a place where we think every part of us, even the parts that are mean and nasty or whatever they might be, have some value and some meaning and that we want to approach them all equally as welcome here. There's a, a poem by Rumi that I imagine I quote in that book. If I don't, I quote it every, every place else. I just don't remember if we were able to put the whole poem in there, but it's called The Guest House, and it talks about welcoming the shame, the meanness, you know, welcome them all in because they're honored guests. They all have meaning. They all have value. So we work with that. We're never going to be perfect at it. There's always going to be, I'm sure for me, parts of myself that I go, ugh, not again, you know, and then I try to back up and say, okay, that part of me that is having this really critical voice about something, why do you need to be here? How are you trying to protect me? So this welcoming from the stance that every part of us, even the, even the ones we like the least, are here for a very good and important reason. And what if we do open our heart and our mind and our bodies to feel what that part is like and, and listen, begin to listen to every part inside about why they're necessary. And it's been really important with working with people who have done some pretty horrible things. I've worked with people who have committed murder. I've worked with people who've done domestic violence. I've worked with therapists who've had horrible ethical violations and all of this. And when we approach those parts that have done these things with the sense that in that moment, it felt like the only pathway for your system, could we be with that part and let that part begin to share with us what that was about for them so that it can heal? And it isn't to say, oh, what you did is okay. That's not the point. It's that it was inevitable in that moment. And how can we be with that part in a way that it never happens again because there's been healing for whatever the pain and fear was driving the terrible action? Interesting. Okay. Now, in the book as well, Bonnie, I'm going to read out something else here, which I find really, really powerful. So this is about um, how we can sort of work with protector parts so that they relax enough so that you can maybe attend to the vulnerable parts. So here's what you say. You say, when we offer ourselves to your protector without judgment or agenda, the one that the protector is sheltering now begins to appear. And that is usually the child within the one who hurt us. These are often moments of deep transfer transformation as our people start to have a felt sense of the pain and fear that drove the person to hurt. So can you maybe comment on that and maybe how this can help like lead to more compassion for these parts of ourselves and the people that might have hurt us in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So if we consider a person, I, I, I use myself as an example often because I know myself more than I could possibly know anybody else, you know, and I've been working at this so long, but if so, so as I've internalized, say my critical dad, and he in there is still feeling judgmental a, a lot at a younger age in my life where I could feel that pressure most of the time. So if I can go to that, that so he, his, his need to pressure and judge me is his protector. That's how he protects himself from having to feel bad about himself 
is to get on my case. So if I can go inside to that father part and say, dad, I trust you have a good heart. What's hurting you or scaring you that you have to be on, on me all the time? And after a while, it's almost like that protector part because it's been, been befriended and has been said, you're not being bad, you're protecting, but what's underneath this? He can kind of melt down and I can begin to feel this young boy inside my dad who was humiliated over and over and over again by his six older sisters and his mother. And it's that humiliation that he's trying not to feel by humiliating me. I get to carry it now. You know, that's how we do it. We pass it down and then we don't have to feel it as much. And so then I can go to, so the child in me who was humiliated feels the presence of this humiliated child in my dad and they know each other. They, re they recognize each other, you know, as both being hurt. And as this humiliated child in my dad gets, is comforted, maybe by the child in me, maybe by the adult in me, maybe by another, by my therapist or whoever's with me in that moment, the need for that protector of my dad's is no longer there so much because this child is healing. This, in, this humiliated child inside my dad is healing. It's a remarkable experience. And in, and in those moments, there develops kind of an, an overall sense inside of me of such a compassion for my dad instead of fear of this person who's going to chew me out. It makes, it makes perfect sense. And I'm just wondering, in, in this sort of way of understanding human nature, Bonnie, you know, in IFS, we have things like the self. In schema therapy, you have, uh, I think it's healthy adult mode. Is there, a, is there an emphasis in your approach on strengthening that sort of wise adult self as well so that we can relate to these, these wounded parts and these um, uh, imported parts as well? Um, maybe indirectly, but I think for me, the, the, the strengthening comes because we're being companionable with each other. It's the internalization where I'm carrying you and you're, car and you're carrying me as a, as, as a companion that seems to be the thing that strengthens the overall sense that things are safe inside, that things can change inside, that there is value in every part inside, you know, if they're internalizing that from me, which I got to internalize from those who helped me, which who knows where they got it, you know, where did they get that experience? But it's been this, this intergenerational healing exchange is happening all the way up through, again, generations in one way or another. And so then the, the parts inside begin to all feel cared for and received and more open to healing. So I don't think very much about like a separate wise self. It doesn't, it just has never presented itself to me that way. It's like the whole system is becoming more caring and more compassionate toward each other. And that the taking in of others who see us that way and hold us is begins to be these wise self feeling places inside. And that there isn't a separate wise self, because this can lead again to that sense of there's supposed to be self-regulation instead of, instead of community. 
you know, that the wise self will begin to run the show. It's like, no, how about we all become a community together and we've internalized each other and we're holding each other. And that that's really the source of wisdom is this community. It isn't just an all by yourself thing. It's this community that holds the wisdom. There, I feel like there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. It's a very sort of organic perspective on what we, what we fundamentally are, which is, which is super cool. I like what you just said, an organic perspective on what we actually are. I really like those words. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Niall. That really, that really says it very nicely because it is. It's just a kind of natural unfolding that comes from listening to what's actually going on inside and having respect that our inner world can reveal itself if there's safety, then there's vulnerability, and then there's the ability to reveal what's in there, and we hold it together. We hold it together. We don't have to do these things alone. For sure, for sure. I don't think even our wise self wants to be alone, you know. Definitely. And just sort of wrapping up here now, Bonnie, um, what are, what's something you would like people to leave this conversation with today? What would you like them to take take away and maybe keep in mind going forward as, as they go about their day and their, their weekend? Gosh, I guess just the possibility that there can be so much kindness developed inside if we stay together and and actually begin to experience enough of the of the goodness inside that we begin to be able to support one another more and more in healing these deep traumatic wounds that most of us are carrying so that we can be different with each other in the world and that the world can actually be a different place. But even if the world isn't a different place, it'd be nice if our families were just different places. It would be nice if our workplace was a different way of kindness toward each other, you know, of a trust that everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got inside. And how can we support each other to, to heal that, whether it's with friends and family and, you know, it doesn't have to be in a clinical setting. For sure. Okay. Well, Bonnie, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you again today. And I really want to recommend... I really want to recommend uh, Bonnie's book, The Heart of Trauma. Um, it's one of these books that has the potential to change how you see the world, how you see yourself, and I suppose how you act in the world as well. So I really, really recommend it. And where can people find or learn more about your work, your work online, Bonnie? Yeah, our organization, we have a little, a very little nonprofit called Nurturing the Heart with the Brain in Mind, and it's nurturingtheheart.org. And all of our classes are, are there. And um, we have a small but wonderful staff that's doing a lot of teaching that is really helpful. I would say one thing, if you're looking for a different understanding of uh, maybe what racism is all about. We have Vanessa Timmons um, as on our staff. She's been doing this work for 30 years and is this remarkable black woman who is a dearest friend. And she teaches a class called Embodied Liberation. And everybody who's taken have said, I never ever thought about racism the way that she speaks about it. So I especially want to recommend that because we feel so lucky to have Vanessa with us. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your mastered library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, 
online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is £97 for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free, as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.